This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the White House is prioritizing customer experience for federal services. The administrator of GSA shares how her agency is working to improve technology, reduce the government's carbon footprint, and manage millions of square feet of real estate. And the Department of Agriculture is gearing up to expand remote and telework for its employees. We sit down with a leader at the USDA to talk about the agency's plans. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. GSA, the General Services Administration, has the mission of delivering value and savings in real estate, acquisition, technology, and other mission support services across government. The person responsible for leading those efforts is Robin Carnahan. She is the administrator of GSA. Administrator Carnahan, welcome to the program. Great to be with you. Sorry I can't be with you in person, but uh, it's great to be with you virtually. So let's start with improving government technology, specifically when it comes to improving the public's interactions with the federal government. What are you doing there? Well, there, there's a lot to be done, uh, as I'm sure you know. But, you know, again and again, we've seen that if you can't make the websites work and the technology doesn't work, it sinks your good policy. So bad delivery sinks good policy. And the Biden administration understands you have to have more than just smart policy. You have to have things that are implemented well that meet people's needs. And so that's what we're trying to do. Uh, the president signed an executive order in December talking about customer service. It's demonstrating that we want government to be more user-friendly. Um, GSA has a lot of ways that we help with that. We support agencies, of course, across the government by providing tech tools and talent. We have shared services for things called, uh, one example is a thing called login.gov. And if you think about it, every interaction with any kind of website, the first step is logging in. And so you want to make sure that's secure and you want that to be easy, but you want it to get the right person. Uh, and so this is a way to be able to have a single type of sign-on that you can use across government. 40 million people already use that in the government. We want to up that to 100 million just this year, including expanding to the VA. So that's, that's one thing that we're doing the other is of course we have public facing services at GSA. One of those is a thing called USA.gov. Uh, and it's kind of like the federal front door if you think about it. So it's a place you can go that will then direct you. So you don't have to necessarily understand what agency delivers the service that you're looking for out of government. You can go to USA.gov or USA.gov in Espanol to find the information you need. So it's really exciting. Um, I, I know that uh, over 80 million people used those services just last year, and we expect it to be more going forward. Well, as you say, the president has prioritized improving customer experience with the government. Where do you think those specifically are the biggest needs? Well, look, there, there are lots of interactions that people have with government uh, in their everyday lives. Uh, I know the president is focused very much in the administration on what's called high-impact service providers. And so what that means is it's places that really have an impact on people's lives, agencies, whether you've lost a job, uh, whether you have a child that needs some care, whether you need some health benefits, whether they're housing or food benefits, whether you're a veteran who needs to access something. 
uh, or, or the Social Security Administration. What we're seeing right now is a lot of people interested in COVID tests, of course. And so there's a new website that has been set up for people to be able to order those. It's very user-friendly uh, and is getting a lot of interest. So in buying and building technology for federal agencies, how is it different from other procurement? How do you think about it differently, if at all? Yeah, so it, it, it is a little bit different. I mean, there's some things that obviously are the same, but there are some things that are a bit different. Um, you know, in the past, people have often thought about uh, technology almost like you're buying a, a bridge or something, right? That it's this big piece of infrastructure that you spend hundreds of millions of dollars on and then you open it one day and then you pass it up for the next 30 years as people use it. But that's not how technology works. Technology is something that's changing all the time. And so we really encourage our agency partners to build things that are reusable or things that can be swapped out or things that can be updated in part, not in whole. So I think of it oftentimes and when I talk to non-technical leaders as almost like a Lego set, you know, that uh, we've all seen with our, with our kids that have lots of different shapes and sizes and you can put them together through these common interfaces. And so we need to think about buying technology in that way uh, because it's going to be better for the public, you're going to get better service, and it's going to be cheaper. Is there any way, though, Administrator, that you can speed up the acquisition of technology so that by the time it gets to the user, it's not already obsolete? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I talk about this a lot, which is uh, we need to be able to move in government at what I call the speed of need. Uh, and when it comes to technology, the needs change pretty quickly. So we need to keep up with that. What doesn't help, frankly, is the long budget cycle and procurement process. And so one of the things that we've been working closely with our uh, partners on the Hill with is to figure out how to change that cycle. Part of it is uh, there's a program that was funded uh, this, this year. It was started a few years ago, but got a lot of funding this past year called the Technology Modernization Fund. And it's a really very interesting approach because rather than having to have an agency go through the normal appropriation cycle that takes a long, long time, and then the procurement takes a long time, you can get uh, this funding through the Tech Modernization Fund that you can get smaller amounts and it's more like an investment fund. So we're trying to be smart about this and you can move quickly um, and it's technologists that are making the decisions about it. Coming next, we continue speaking with Administrator Robin Carnahan about her plans and priorities to support equity, create good jobs, and fight climate change. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm here with Robin Carnahan. She's Administrator of GSA. Administrator, GSA is in charge of uh, the federal government's real estate, and I have some figures. You're responsible for more than 370 million rentable square feet, and it's about $75 billion in annual contracts. That's a lot of real estate. And I wonder now that federal workers and contractors are able to remote work remotely, what will happen to all that office space? That's a, it's a great question, Mimi. We're thinking about this all the time, as you can imagine. And I was just on a call yesterday with uh, the, the deputies at agencies across the government who are thinking a lot about the future of work um, and reimagining what the future of work looks like. That includes reimagining how much space that they're going to need. Um, I will tell you that uh, it's something that we've got teams uh, focused on. There's lots of opportunity to do things differently. 
We're looking at what's happening in the private sector as well. Uh, and so we're going to be, you know, modeling uh, our decisions on, on what's happening across the country. I think there are a couple of things that are worth noting. Uh, one is I think that we can shrink the footprint some uh, to reflect this new reality. We at GSA are going to be leaning in a lot on telework going forward because what we found is uh, it's, it's a way to continue to give terrific service to our customers, but also to have flexibility for our workforce. It's going to make us more competitive as an employer and a more attractive place to work. And it's going to open up opportunities to hire people across the country. So we think from lots of points of view, it makes it makes a lot of sense. So, so the question is, how are we going to save money for the taxpayer in the midst of all of this? And so you mentioned the rentable square, square feet, but there are two components of uh, GSA when it comes to property. One is property that the government owns right now. Um, and other is property that the government rents on behalf of agency partners. And what's interesting is that uh, obviously the rentals are much more expensive and there are opportunities to consolidate uh, agencies into smaller footprints of buildings. So we're thinking a lot about that um, and we think we're going to be able to do more of that. We're going to create uh, co-working spaces and the same thing we've seen in the private sector that are closer to where people live. We're going to provide things like office in a box uh, for agencies that want to use that. So uh, we're, we're thinking a lot about this topic and it's pretty exciting to be in the middle of it. And it'll certainly save money for the taxpayer in the end if Absolutely. that footprint is, is shrunk. Well, I want to turn to climate change now, and specifically as it relates to electric um, zero emission vehicles, because GSA is responsible for 226,000 government vehicles, and only a small percentage of those are electric. So what's the plan there? Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, up to now, we have a small percent that is electric. There, there are a couple of components to that. Uh, one, of course, is we need to you know, make sure the vehicles we're getting for our agency partners across government meet their mission needs, right? And there are some limitations in that. There, we need a lot of trucks. And it's only just coming, going to be coming on the line in the next couple of years, electric trucks. Um, and so one of the things we're doing is talking a lot to folks in the industry about what our needs are and our intentions uh, so that they can plan and be able to uh, build out uh, these kind of vehicles and, and have, have the supply available. So we're excited about that. The other piece is charging infrastructure. That obviously is a, is a component of all of this. Um, and it's something that we're going to be investing in going forward. So very excited about it. I will tell you in the in the house past version of uh, Build Back, Back Better, there was about $3 billion for GSA to get uh, about 100,000 new zero emission vehicles and put in 50,000 new charging stations around the country. So. Uh, we are very eager, uh, if not, uh, you know, however we can to be able to move forward on these projects. So the larger question here, Administrator, is how is GSA leveraging the considerable buying power of the government to mitigate the effects of climate change? Yeah, so uh, great question. Uh, and we, we uh, have lots of opportunities there. Um, because we have all of these uh, buildings, uh, that is an opportunity to do retrofits and upgrades. I was not long ago out in New Carrollton, uh, out, out in Maryland, and saw a federal building out there that was able with some retrofits to, to reduce their ener energy consumption by 60% and greenhouse gas emissions by 20,000 20, tons uh, saved. And here's the interesting thing. It also saved $2.5 million a year in operating costs and created 500 local jobs. So. We know that a lot of these 
efficiency and sustainability measures are just triple wins. They're good for the climate and sustainability. They're good for jobs and it's good for taxpayers. So we're going to be doing more of that. The other piece uh, that's really interesting is the federal government's one of the biggest buyers of energy. If you think about it, we buy about 2% of the total electricity that's bought in the country, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it does make the federal government one of the biggest energy consumers in the country. And if we can move ahead on the president's goal of getting to 100% clean energy used by the government by 2030, that really is a big impact. So we're going to be using our buying power as an energy buyer as well to push this agenda. Well, we're one year into the Biden presidency. How's GSA doing so far? Well, I'm, I'm six months into to my time at GSA, uh, and I, I couldn't be prouder of the team. Uh, they are working hard on behalf of the American people. I have been very impressed with the mission focus of the team uh, and their interest in continuing to deliver. Look, these are strange times for everyone. There's just lots of uncertainty. Um, but I, ha I have been very impressed with people's focus on customer delivery, looking out for taxpayers. Look, Harry Truman set up GSA uh, many years ago to provide better services to the public and do it cheaper for the taxpayer. And that's what we are focused on at GSA every day, uh, and we're going to continue to do that. Well, Administrator Carnahan, I appreciate you uh, being on the program, and I hope you'll come uh, another time and give us another update. Up next, the Department of Agriculture is expanding remote and telework options for its employees. Straight ahead on Government Matters, we talk specifics and how it would affect USDA services. We'll be right back. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has issued an expanded plan for remote and telework for their employees. Those teleworking must report to the office at least two days per pay period. Remote workers are not required to come into the office on a regular basis. Malcolm Shorter is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Administration at USDA. Malcolm, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, so there's a minimum of two days, as I mentioned, um, per pay period that a teleworker has to come in physically into the office. Correct. How did you arrive at that number? Well, I think the way we arrived at it uh, simply was looking at what was the best way uh, to be able to frame our workforce and allow them the, the flexibility uh, and still be able to do the programmatic work and be able to get that out. Um, having the ability to come into the office um, two days out of a, of a pay period, which is you know, allowing folks to work uh, eight days uh, for telework, uh, has made a tremendous uh, impact on our workforce, allowing folks the flexibility, particularly during this pandemic, and having to understand that we have to do business in a new way, and our workforce really does appreciate that. But why not do maximum telework? Why not say, you know, you don't need to come in for those two days. You can be teleworking all the time. Well, I... We call this uh, sort of a maximum telework flexibility because if you do anything less than that, then you're really doing remote work. And we also have uh, the opportunity for our folks to do that. Um, the department itself and sort of the agencies and the missions uh, that we do sometimes do require folks uh, to be in an office space just to get the, the, the administrative things done, uh, some, some in-person work may be required. Uh, so we've tried to do that in a, in a way that is uh, respectful and responsible uh, to keep our, uh, our, our 
to keep our people safe, uh, to allow them the opportunity to come in and get their work done. So the guidance still is flexible based on mission needs or staff needs? Very much so. Uh, one of the things we did with the issuance of our, our directive for telework and remote work, was we, we were able to do an assessment of an analysis of the work that folks were doing. Uh, and we were able to talk to our workers also in sort of a survey format to, to get their feelings about how they're doing things and what is good for them, what is available for them. And then we took all of that and we made a, a determination of what jobs could be remote, what jobs could be telework. And now it's up to the agencies or uh, the missionaries to determine for some of that work how many days folks come in? Because that, what we talked about was the maximum. Uh, four days of, um, four days every, every week or eight days of pay period. Now, there are some jobs in USDA that wouldn't allow for that. For example, if you're a firefighter, you got to be there. Nobody uh, wants you to fight <laughs> fires at home. <laughs> uh, and if, if, but there are other things. The, the vast mission of the department uh, requires that sometimes folks have to be on site and so we're trying to be responsible on how we have that happen. If you're a farmer or a rancher or a producer and you want to go into one of our local service center agencies, um, they want to be able to come in and talk to someone so we have to have that person available. If you're um, a farmer or a rancher or a forester and you're out on your land and you want someone to come and talk to you about um, conservation or, or, or how you're doing things, you also want someone to be able to come and do that. So we're trying to weigh what is best not only for our employees, but what is best for the American people for, and, and, for, and for our customers. So uh, let's talk about remote workers. <laughs> How does locality pay work for that? Well, locality pay uh, is, is what is determined by the, um, by the Office of Personal Management. But if you are a remote worker and your locality pay is tied to where you physically uh, reside or where you physically work. For example, um, if you're a, rem a remote worker uh, that may have a job, the, the, the job is in Washington, D.C., but however, you're remote working in uh, somewhere in Ohio, somewhere in Ohio yeah. then your locality pay would be tied to Ohio, not necessarily Washington, D.C. So how does this policy specifically improve diversity at USDA? Diversity, inclusion, um, accessibility are the things that we're trying to infuse more into our workforce. Uh, this policy of telework and remote work allows folks who never really thought they had an opportunity uh, to work in federal government, not just USDA, but federal government, um, uh, an opportunity to apply. Uh, it increases our ability to uh, attract uh, top talent, but more importantly, it cr increases our ability to retain the top talent that we have. You know, morale has been low at USDA according to recent surveys. Do you think that this um, telework and remote work guidance will improve morale overall at, at, at the agency? Absolutely. I think um, starting back in uh, March of uh, 2021, uh, Secretary Vilsack 
uh, issued his interim guidance uh, for telework, and that had a tremendous shot in the arm uh, for our workforce who had heretofore uh, previously not had that level of telework available to them. Uh, remember, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Folks were concerned and they were worried about, you know, uh, child care, other things, uh, just coming into an office space and, and wanting to make sure uh, that it was safe. So the ability to telework uh, was paramount. And we weighed that against our ability to be not only responsive, but effective and efficient toward our customers, uh, because you have to weigh that balance. Um, and, and I think it has given sort of a new life uh, to, to our workforce. Um, I won't say that you know, it, has, it has solved all problems, um, but what, what they do know is that uh, the leadership uh, under Secretary Vilsack and Deputy Secretary Bernard are listening. Uh, and very quickly, is this a permanent shift or does this depend on the pandemic? No, this is, uh, this is a permanent shift under this administration, and certainly there's opportunities for other administrations to come in and do different things, but I believe that the, what we are seeing in the effectiveness and the efficiency of our workforce as we are putting out our programmatics makes this something that folks want, uh, would want to continue. Part of what we're doing is that this isn't a, a, a remote work policy or telework policy that we've written and we're going to throw it on the shelf. This is a living, breathing document. And we are making um, analyses uh, and, and taking um, surveys for folks. How's this working? What's working? Because as we try to envision what this new workforce of the future looks like, this is just a tool uh, that we're going to use to, again, attract top talent and retain top talent. All right. Well, Malcolm, thanks so much for being on the program. Appreciate it. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable 
include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.